In this book, What's So Amazing About Grace, written by Philip Yancey, he recounts a true story told by a man who worked with vulnerable people in Chicago. A sex worker came to him in wretched straits. She was homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. And through sobs and tears, she shared that she had been renting her daughter out to men to support her own drug habit. And he said this, I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked her if she'd ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. I wonder whether any of us here have ever felt that at one time or another. Maybe you're here today for the first time. As you walked in, maybe you were slightly nervous because you weren't sure what to expect and all these like apparently holy people and you may have been worried about how you would be received. Perhaps you're not sure you're a good enough person, thinking you'd better be on your best behavior. You know, the church can so easily be perceived as a place you go to after you've cleaned up your act, not before. But God, who is absolutely holy, who exhorts us to the highest possible standards of behavior, he was perfectly represented in the person of his son, Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you've seen me, you've seen the father, Jesus said, the exact representation. So look at Jesus. That's exactly what God is like. As we read the accounts of the life of Jesus, the most holy person who has ever walked this earth, we might be astonished at just how magnetic he was to those who knew their lives were a mess. And in responding to his friend's story, Philip Yancey raised an important question. What struck me about my friend's story is that women much like this prostitute fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What has happened? The more I pondered this question, the more I felt drawn to one word as the key which is why he writes this book. That word is grace. And that's what I want to talk about today, God's amazing grace. When you were a child, I wonder if you ever got, got found out doing something really naughty. Plenty of occasions for me, but one which I photographically remember was an occasion when I was eight years old and my favorite teacher of all time was Mrs. Tr Tweddle, Mrs. Tweddle. She was my year four teacher uh, with a leaning towards art and music with slightly wild, wavy hair. And 1968 was a different era, and she chain smoked throughout the school day. I'm not sure even if she had an ashtray in the room. It would just get longer and longer until it would drop on your desk or wherever it was she was wandering at the time, probably smoking 40 cigarettes a day. In her creativity, 
Mrs. Tweddle brought large amounts of her own money, coins, into school to teach us about money. So this is pre-decimal currency. There were large amounts of shillings and sixpences and threepenny bits and pennies and halfpennies. And during this lesson on money, in a moment of weakness, I slipped a handful of those pennies into my pocket. And on the way home from school, I stopped at a shop. I bought a paper bag full of what were known as quarter penny chews. And as I came through the side gate of our house, I can see it like a video crystal clear right now. I opened the gate, I went to lean towards the drain pipe by the back door to hide my bag of sweets to later come out in the garden. And as I did so, the back door opened, there was my mum. She's like, what's that? What's you got in that bag? Sweets? Where did you get the money to buy sweets? There really was no getting away with it. I've been caught absolutely red-handed. And so I said, I, I stole it from Mrs. Tweddle. And I felt terrible. I felt terrible for being caught. I felt terrible for the consequences I expected to face. But I also felt terrible about what I had done. I felt ashamed for stealing her personal money. I'll return to that story a little bit later. We've all done things that fall short of the behavior that God exhorts us to. And we all might anticipate facing the consequences and perhaps even the shame of what we've done, much more so than what I felt when I was caught stealing money for sweets. But I love the message translation in the first few verses of Ephesians 2. I'm just going to read a few phrases from this. It tells us that despite living lives where we did what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, God, far from losing his temper and doing away with the whole lot of us, was immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. And his desire is to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Really precious verses there. Immense mercy and showering us with grace. Grace is very closely connected to mercy, but they're actually two distinct things. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve punishment for something we've done, and we are let off that punishment. That is mercy. Justice would be getting what we deserve, right? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Being shown mercy and also being showered with kindness and favor, which we haven't earned, we don't in any way deserve. Mercy is what every person who's ever done something wrong craves, and grace takes it to another level. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the word grace in the message translation of Acts 20, verse 24. He defines grace as incredibly extravagant generosity. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, the Apostle Paul talks about the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. John writes in John 1, 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Because grace is not just a one-off thing, not just kind of getting our ticket stamped so we get to go to heaven one day. It is to be the ongoing experience, one blessing after the other, of everyone who turns to Jesus. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Transforming Grace, likens the experience of receiving grace to that of watching the sea from the beach. One wave has barely receded before another arrives. They keep coming from an inexhaustible supply, 
And so it is with the grace of God poured out on us, receiving what we don't deserve again and again and again. Although this gift of grace is offered us to, uh, to us freely, sometimes we can think we're, we're not worthy of it, that we don't deserve it. And the truth is, we aren't and we don't. But throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus showing grace to people who were considered at the time to be highly unworthy of God's approval. Sex workers, people from a despised ethnic group, tax collectors who were hated by the Jewish people. They were seen as traitors because they were working for the occupying force, the Romans. We see tax collectors and sinners often as the descriptor of the bunch of people Jesus hung out with. In John chapter 4, we read about a conversation Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at a well. And she goes there to draw water. Jesus strikes up a conversation by asking her to give him a drink. Now, to our ears today, that might seem like a relatively ordinary conversation. But for the first readers, the first hearers of this story in the New Testament 2,000 years ago, this was absolutely scandalous. Like, what? Why was that? Well, firstly, because she was a Samaritan. For hundreds of years, Jews and Samaritans, Jews and Samaritans, there'd been enmity between them. They disagreed on various things. And Jews and Samaritans just did not associate with each other. Most people would have walked on the journey Jesus was taking around Samaria as opposed to going through it. Now, secondly, she was a woman. It's hard to comprehend the status of women 2,000 years ago in that culture, the time Jesus lived. They were considered, women were considered subhuman a possession with very few legal rights. And added to that, Jesus was not just a man, he was a rabbi. Rabbis were not supposed to speak even to their own wives and daughters in public, let alone to a woman and indeed a woman from this despised ethnic group. And there's more. It was typical at the time for women to go to the well in groups in the morning to gather water and then perhaps in the late afternoon, early evening uh, to do so again. But it appears that the fact she was drawing water alone at midday indicates she wasn't welcome to be among other women. As we read later in the story, she was living with a man who was not her husband. Culturally at that time, absolutely, people would have been appalled. And it's fair to assume that she may have had a reputation that meant others didn't actually want to associate at all with her. So Jesus has several reasons not to talk to this woman, but he does. And if you read their conversation, it's not just a chat. He includes her in a revelation of who he was, the long-awaited Messiah, perhaps more clearly than he did to anyone else. And he invites her into eternal life as she puts her faith in, in him. His grace extended to, in the world's eyes, the most unworthy, the most undeserving Another person from the Bible who may have seemed undeserving of Jesus' grace was the Apostle Paul, who wrote many of the letters which are contained in the New Testament. Before he followed Jesus, uh, he was a Pharisee, a high-ranking member of Judaism, who had so vehemently opposed the followers of Jesus that he had stood by guarding the cloaks of those who stoned one of Jesus' followers by the name of Stephen to death. He stood there approving of this execution. Originally called Saul, his name changed later. And we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. 
He was bad. He was feared by Christians. And yet, he was shown grace. He wrote those verses I just mentioned from Ephesians 2 about God's immense mercy and incredible love being embraced and showered with grace and kindness. And he wrote the phrase in Ephesians 1 about the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Paul, who described himself as the worst of sinners, experienced God's amazing grace, and he never got over it. I don't know how you may be feeling today. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm not sure my life is really sorted. You know, maybe not. I'm among all these apparently good people, and, you know, I've got this shameful secret or not-so-secret addiction. I've got this issue, which means if people really knew me, I don't think I would be accepted here. I don't think I'm good enough to fit in. But when we see the way Jesus interacted with people, it strongly suggests that those who feel like that are exactly the kind of people Jesus is longing to extend his grace to. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, does that mean we don't care about sin? That we believe that people can go on doing things that are not God's desire for us without restraint and grace will cover that? And that's a fair question to ask, especially if you've been sinned against, you've been hurt because of someone else's actions. And the answer is, no, we are no softer on sin, I hope, than Jesus was. As we read stories of Jesus extending grace to all sorts of people in the Gospels, we also see that he doesn't shy away from sin. For example, when he encountered that woman at the well, he reveals what is going on in her life to her. He lets her know, I know you're living with a man who's not your husband. He doesn't ignore it, but in his love for people, he sees past it. Jesus was very well aware of people's weaknesses and the ways that they had turned away from God's will in their lives. But that doesn't exclude them in any way from receiving his grace. But he does want it to change us. If you weren't here last week, I recommend you go to the website or podcast and listen to the message that John Bodley brought. John Bodley brought. Uh, he talked about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And in that encounter, Jesus showed her this incredible grace. But he also said to her in John 8, verse 11, go now and leave your life of sin. He was saying, I want something better for you. When my mum caught me having stolen those pennies from Mrs. Tweddle, there was the immediate consequence of being told off, clearly letting me know that I, what I'd done was wrong. But my mum wanted the best for me. She didn't want me to grow up to be a dishonest person. She wanted me to not to ever steal anything again. And so there was something I needed to do. So she confiscated the sweets. She worked out how many pennies I had taken deducted them from my upcoming pocket monies and gave me the coins and told me to take them to school the next day. And to not just slip them quietly back in with the other coins, like nothing had happened, but to go to Mrs. Tweddle and confess to having stolen them from her and to apologize. And so I went to her desk. I don't know whether teachers still have desks at the front, but I went up to her desk and uh, Mrs. Tweddle patiently listened to my sorry tale and my heartfelt apology. And she smiled, thanked me for being honest, 
and sent me back to my seat feeling good about making things right with her. When she could have scolded me and distanced herself from me, she actually did the opposite. And in some ways, that experience strengthened my relationship with her. And I will never forget my favorite teacher, Mrs. Tweddle. Just as my mum wanted the best for me because she loved me, Jesus wants the best for us. And so we receive God's grace as a free gift, but our response to that gift should be to allow God to change us, to live lives aligned to his will. As I said, one of the most powerful examples of someone who was transformed through receiving grace was Paul, who I mentioned earlier. He was an enemy of Christians, vehemently opposing the church, and Paul encountered grace but didn't continue then in his way of life, opposing Jesus, killing and imprisoning followers. He devoted his life then to promoting the gospel and was ultimately killed for doing so himself. A massive transformation. Here's another story of transformation. As we think about grace, many of us will be familiar because we've sung it probably whether we're a believer or not. Amazing grace. Uh, but the story of its composer, John Newton, may not be as familiar as the hymn itself. Newton was a slave trader traveling throughout the African coast to capture and sell people for profit. And on one of these journeys, Newton and his crew encountered a storm so violent they were at risk of losing their lives. And so Newton cried out for God, to God for mercy and he escaped with his life. That was very instrumental in his coming to faith. And after he came to faith, Although it apparently took a while to sort out some of his actions, he was absolutely changed by God. He became a minister and a strong advocate for the abolition of the slave trade and became an important influence on the politician and abolitionist William Wilberforce. He was so well aware of the terrible things that he'd done. And he wrote, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me. He was set free and not only wrote one of the most enduring hymns of all time, but became part of setting others free through his writing on the slave trade. What an incredible transformation. Grace and experiencing grace should change us. Whether you're here for the first time today, whether you're exploring faith, whether you've been a Christian for most of your life, I believe there's an invitation today to grasp afresh that we are saved by amazing grace. We are all messed up, we are walking wounded who are embraced by the unconditional love of God. Those of us who have committed our lives to Jesus are being changed by his grace to become more and more like him. But we need to recognize without grace we would still be where we were. It is fair to say, you know, I'm a more mature Christian now than I used to be. I'm more careful to avoid sin now than I used to be. But Christian maturity is not about feeling more and more righteous, self-righteous. It's actually kind of the opposite. It includes growing in our awareness that we are sinners. You know, I'm a recipient of grace. I'm a saint, the Bible says, but I'm a saint, sadly, who sins. The people who thought they had it all together, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, were repelled by Jesus too proud and unself-aware to realize their need of his grace. And Jesus said, I've come to those who will receive, you know, you're aware of your need of me. Nancy Mayer's writing about taking the Lord's Supper. 
as we just did, made a profound statement. And she uses in this phrase, I'm going to read the word Catholic, because that was her denomination, but she could have just as easily used the word Christian in its place. So talking of the Lord's Supper and taking the bread and the juice or the wine, I don't partake, partake, sorry, I don't partake because I'm a good Catholic, holy and pious and sleek. I partake because I'm a bad Catholic, riddled by doubt and anxiety and anger, fainting from severe hypoglycemia of the soul. We come to the Lord's Supper in humility, recognizing our need for forgiveness, recognizing that grace only comes because of a price paid, the punishment that releases our forgiveness was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. As we recognize the grace that has been extended to us, we start to have more grace for others, especially those who haven't got it all together, people who perhaps the world rejects because of their brokenness, because of their sin. When Jesus walked the earth and met such people, his arms were just wide open to them. Somebody I know who had spent a long time in prison came to faith while he was inside and on getting out he immediately went to a church and as he was leaving after the service he went to introduce himself to the church leader and just to thank him for the service and when he spoke to me he said um, in that conversation I briefly revealed I just come out of prison and he recounted this the leader's response was along the lines of we don't welcome people like you here disillusioned, as you can imagine, hurting, as you can imagine, he found his way here to Trent. And I'm delighted that what he found here was quite the opposite. What he found here was grace, a non-judgmental acceptance of his past, acceptance of his weaknesses. And even after an episode of appalling behavior here, despite there being some necessary discipline, he continued and he knew he continued to be loved and accepted. If any of you have walked in here thinking I'll be made to feel worse than I already do, my sincere hope is that you will find here love and acceptance and grace and you'll find it with Jesus. For some of us, the challenge today might not be accepting God's grace, but actually extending it. I wonder how we might react if someone like that sex worker I spoke about at the very beginning of the talk or my friend who'd spent a long time in prison sat down next to us on a Sunday or turned up at our small group. Or perhaps we've struggled to extend grace to people close to us who have wronged us. Grace is exactly what we want to receive when we've done something wrong, but it's harder to extend it when we're confronted with the guilt of others, where, where there's been hurt between us, where there's been tension. But we are all, aren't we, just trying to imitate Jesus by his grace, in his strength. Jesus was perfect. He'd never done anything wrong. He was truly a devout man, careful to live a fully righteous life. And yet, he hung out with people, the so-called righteous people, despised. He was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a friend of the sort of people the Pharisees thought he should be an enemy of. And that is what he calls us to do as well, to be both recipients and also givers of God's grace. The famous author C.S. Lewis walked into a conference on comparative religions where experts were from around the world were debating what, if anything, is unique about the Christian faith. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. 
Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional, free of charge, no strings attached. In the Bible, Jesus talks effectively about grace, even if he doesn't use the word, often through parables, through stories, and perhaps most impactfully, he demonstrated it in all of his interactions, extending grace wherever he went. And he still does. And he still does through his people, the church. I believe there's an invitation today for all of us to experience God's grace, whether we are just exploring faith, maybe we're thinking we just don't deserve it. We don't, okay, none of us do. Or whether you've been a Christian for many years, but you've forgotten somehow your need of God's grace. Maybe you've moved into a place of striving to earn his love by doing all the right things. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 16 says this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can be confident that we'll find grace as we approach the Lord, as we approach his throne of grace. We can have confidence that we are accepted, that we don't need to strive to perform. His grace is freely available to every one of us. We don't earn it. It is unmerited favor. Grace cannot be earned. It's unmerited favor. This grace, I think you'd agree, sounds amazing. Because it is. It is. 